Let's open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Tonight, we're going to consider the second chapter in this Gospel. And some of it will be familiar to you, but I imagine that we're going to go over a few things tonight that will sound sort of new to you. Maybe they're not the most commonly uh, thought of aspects of the birth of Jesus. It's funny, as I studied this, it just came to mind that the things we think about regarding the birth of Jesus really much more come to us from the Gospel of Luke. Um, For some reason, those events are much more prominent, at least in my mind. I'll just speak for myself. Uh, And I I found that the events, as Matthew describes them, uh, of course, they they also happened as well as Luke. These are complementary accounts, not contradictory accounts. Uh, But the, the, the... The events that Matthew describes, for some reason, they just stick a little less in our mind, or at least I could say that of myself. Anyway, here, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, I think it's interesting that Matthew begins this chapter. Again, can I just remind all of us, the writers of the Bible did not write in chapter and verse, right? They just wrote a long, continuous story. Um, Matter of fact, in the form of the ancient Greek language that they used, there was also very little punctuation. But anyway, when we say Matthew started at chapter 2, Matthew didn't. He just wrote his account. We're starting at chapter 2 of we've made of Matthew's account. Anyway, this begins after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Matthew actually tells us very little about the birth of Jesus. We don't know about the census of Caesar Augustus. We don't know why Mary and Joseph came together to Bethlehem. We don't know about there being no room in the inn. We don't know about Jesus being born in a stable. We don't know many of these details. Luke tells us that. But he says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, now Matthew's going to point out how this child was received into the world. It's very interesting. He's going to show us that the reception given to this newborn messianic king, that he received worship from people who were very distant, but those who were closest to him rejected him and in fact tried to kill him. Now, this happened in Bethlehem. Of course, we remember Bethlehem, it's about six miles from Jerusalem. Matter of fact, today, Bethlehem is virtually a suburb of modern Jerusalem. It's right on the edges of it. But in those days, you would say that it was about 10 kilometers from Jerusalem, about six miles. And Bethlehem, of course, is famous as being the ancestral home of David, the great king of Israel, and, remember, the founder of the royal dynasty. All the subsequent kings of Judah after David were from his family line. And so as soon as Jesus is born, notice things start to happen. What happens? In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now we can't ignore the time marker this gives us. We're told that this happened in the days of Herod the king. This was the one known as Herod the Great. And Herod indeed was great. In some ways, he was great as a ruler. He was great as a builder. He was great as an administrator. In other ways, he was great in politics and he was great in cruelty. He was wealthy. He was politically gifted. He was intensely loyal to Rome. He was an excellent administrator. And he loved to build. He launched several very ambitious building projects, which endeared him to the Jewish people, especially the renovation of the temple. Herod took this humble temple that had been rebuilt by Ezra and the people coming back from exile, and Herod remodeled or renovated that into something absolutely spectacular. So on the one hand, the Jewish people loved him and admired him, but there was an even greater contradictory feeling in the heart of the Jewish people. They hated him. They hated Herod. Well, first of all, because to pay for all those magnificent building projects, he imposed very heavy taxes upon the people. And he resented the fact that the Jews never embraced him as one of their own. 
Herod wanted to think of himself as a Jew. But actually, he was Edomian. That is, he was an Edomite. At least half or whole an Edomite. Uh, uh, from the people of Edom, from the people of Esau, descendant of Esau. And, and therefore, the Jewish people never completely accepted him again as one of their own. And this bothered Herod to no end. Especially in the last years of Herod, he suffered an illness that made him even more paranoid than normal. And he turned to great cruelty and fits of rage and jealousy, and he killed many people close to him. We'll talk more about that later. But just to give you an idea of what kind of man you're dealing with, Augustus, the Roman emperor, had said very bitterly, he said this, that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was Herod's son. And this was the meaning of, because Herod wanted to act like a Jew and ingratiate himself with the Jews, Herod would never eat a pig, right? But he would gladly kill his sons. Now, you and I look at that saying, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. It's even more striking in Greek because in the Greek, the word for pig and the word for son, they're very close in the way that they sound. Now, perhaps just as importantly, this gives us a chronological marker for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus was born, therefore, before the death of Herod the Great, which is probably dated in the year 4 B.C. Now, that may sound confusing to you. How could Jesus be born before Christ? Well, look, the dating systems that people have established, they're just somewhat erroneous from time to time. When they established the dating system, establishing when B.C. and A.D. would begin and all of that, they were just a bit mistaken. So on our calendars, in all likelihood, again, we can't be certain about these things. I want to remind you, ancient chronology is notoriously complicated and tricky. I, I must be very honest with you. I don't bother myself very much with problems in ancient chronology because I just know that these sometimes are very complicated problems that are impossible to solve 2,000 years later. Listen, sometimes I have trouble remembering what I did yesterday morning, Right? I get chronology mixed up in my head for a week ago. Trying to solve complicated chronological problems from 2,000 years ago can be practically impossible. But anyway, most people say, most historians would agree, that Herod died in the year 4 BC. Therefore, Jesus must have been born sometime before that. Now, what happened when Herod was king? Well, we just read it. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, these travelers are called wise men, which in the ancient Greek, that word is something like magoi or magoi. And there's a lot of misconceptions and legends about these men. I don't have to tell this audience. You know exactly where the skulls of these men are, don't you? They are in a beautiful gold case on the altar at the Cologne Dome, at the cathedral in Cologne. Well, that's the story at least, right? There's three skulls in there. And for hundreds upon hundreds of years, thousands upon thousands of pilgrims would make that trek to the Cologne Cathedral and walk past those skulls and feel that they were right next to these wise men from the East. And so there's a lot of legends about these guys. First of all, let's just say a few things at first. There's nothing that says there were three of them, right? Nowhere in the text does it say that there were three in number. They're not kings, but they're called wise men, which probably means that they were sort of astronomers and, and somewhat researchers of, of uh, mystical things and that kind of business. And they were probably a great company of people, not only three, as I said before. Additionally, in all likelihood, well, I, I can say this with virtual certainty. They did not come on the night of Jesus' birth. They saw the star on the night of Jesus' birth. But they had to prepare the things for travel. They had to travel a great distance. They came many months after the birth of Jesus. I would put it at some time, in all likelihood, between six months and 18 months after the birth of Jesus, they arrived in Jerusalem. Now, the term magoi or magi has been applied to these men. And it really was a broad term. It covered a variety of men who were interested in dreams and astrology and magic and books and all of this business. But it's significant that they came from the East. 
They came from the lands into which several hundred years before the Jewish people had been exiled when both Israel and Judah were conquered. And so there is no doubt or very little doubt, I should say, that part of the influence upon these Magoi or these Magi was the Jewish people who had come into these eastern lands as a result of the exile. And there are some theories We don't have any solid historical proof of this, but there are some theories that one of the influences upon these men was, in fact, Daniel the prophet. Because Daniel, we know, was made the chief of the wise men of Babylon. And these were sort of forerunners to this class of people known as the Magi. Now, another common thing among these wise men of the East was that they shared something that many people shared in the world at that time. And that was the expectation of a Messiah or a great man that would come from Judea. Judea. Not very long after Jesus was born, the Roman historian Suetonius wrote this. He said, There had spread all over the East an old and established belief that it was fated at that time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Tacitus, another Roman historian of this general period, wrote this. He said, there was a firm persuasion that at this very time the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. And so there was a strong messianic expectation, not only in the Jewish world, but even beyond at this time. And this is one of the reasons why I think that these magi were ready to believe that when they saw this star in the east, or they were in the east, they must have saw it in the west, that that they were convinced that something messianic was happening. Now, again, as I said, church traditions will tell you the names of these guys, Uh, Uh, Melchior, Caspar, Balthazar, but it's all just legends. And and I can give you my firm assurance, whosever's skulls those are in the Cologne Dome, it is not the skulls of these three men. But I will say, it's brought a lot of business to Cologne over the years. So, at least it's been good for that. Well, nevertheless, what did these wise men do? I want you to notice, they did not go directly to Bethlehem. They went instead where first? To Jerusalem. Guided by the astronomical phenomenon mentioned following, they came to this area and expected to find answers in Jerusalem. I think it's entirely likely that they saw this star, they saw this phenomenon, and I don't know for how long they saw it. Maybe they only saw it on the day Jesus was born, but they knew where it was, at least in some direction, and they knew that it was connected with a king from the east, or from, uh, that it was connected with, um, with the, uh, the birth of the messianic king of the, the, the Jews, and they set out. It's entirely possible that they did not see the star again until it reappears later on in this chapter. By the way, you might be wondering, why do people even say that these magi were kings? Well, actually, it's a very old idea in the history of Christianity. Going back to the first, uh, uh, well, I shouldn't say the first, I would say the the fourth, the, the third or fourth centuries, we have this idea coming up among Christians that these magi were actually kings. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But I think one of the reasons why is because there are several Old Testament passages that speak about Gentile kings coming and worshiping the Messiah. And I think some Christians just figured, well, this is a fulfillment of that. So they came to Jerusalem, and when they came there, they expected that the leaders and the people of the capital city of the Jews would be even more interested in the birth of their king than they were. I mean, wouldn't you expect that? There's been born a king of the Jews. Let's go to Jerusalem. And you would expect that you would walk into Jerusalem and there would be signs and posters and banners everywhere celebrating the birth of this king. And so they go up to the first guy they see on the street, this great company of dignified wise men coming so far from the east. And they say, we've come here to Jerusalem because we saw a sign in the heavens that told us that your king was born. What can you tell us about this? And what does the guy say? I don't know. I never heard anything about this. They would have been shocked to find it. So eventually they get an audience with 
Herod. So this is what they say here. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I have to say, it's very interesting that they traveled this great distance to honor a king, but there's still a little irony in it that it says the king of the Jews. I want you to think, what was the opinion of most of the world of the Jewish people at that time in the world? Let's face it. At that time, the Jewish people were often despised and dishonored because of their unique customs and beliefs, because often of their success and prosperity, and they were often thought to be a low, rebellious, troublesome, and conquered race. Now, it was remarkable that these wise men from the East would travel such a great distance to honor a baby king, but it's even more remarkable that they would say, the king of the Jews. Now, I'm going to make an analogy that that is not entirely correct here. It's a little too extreme, and so I don't want you to take this analogy too literally, but I just want to kind of give you a flavor of it. Imagine somebody spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros in pursuit of finding the king of the gypsies. You go, well, who cares, right? That's how some people would regard it. You know, in the opinion of many people, they're they're a weak and, and not very high people. What's the big deal? That is how the Jewish people in many ways were regarded. And yet they did it. They came this far distance and they said, we want to see this one who has been born king of the Jews. Again, I just want that to sink into your mind. Do you understand how unusual that is? Let me put it this way. Almost always, I don't know of a historical example similar to this. There may be one, but I don't know of it. Can you think of another example where someone has been born a king? Now, most of the time, aren't they born princes? And later on, they become kings when the king or whoever, the queen or whoever dies? But no, not this one. This one was born a king. Very unique. And then why have they come? Notice it here. It says in verse 2, for we have seen his star in the east. Now, there's many different suggestions for why and how and what mechanism God might have used to make the star. Some people say that it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Some people say that it was a conjunction of some other planets. Uh, Other people suggest that it was a supernova, a star that had had gone into a supernova state. Other people think that it was a special comet or meteor. Or, Or there's other people that say God just put up a unique light in the sky and that's all there was to it. Whatever it was, I think it's very significant. God met them in their own medium. These men were, not wholly, but certainly in part, they were astronomers. And how did God speak to astronomers? He put a star in the sky. And by the way, this was also in fulfillment of Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. That verse says, and it's one of the prophecies of Balaam, by the way. It says, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And this was widely regarded in the ancient world by Jewish scholars to be a messianic prediction. So there's very much an Old Testament reference to a star referencing this idea of being a sign of the Messiah. And by the way, I want you to notice what it says. There. I, I never really noticed this until I looked over at this time in verse 2. Look at it carefully. For we have seen a star in the east. That's not what my text says. My text says we have seen his star in the east. It was his star. It was Jesus' star itself, but it also led them to Christ. It was his unique thing. And so what's the last thing that they say in verse 2? That we have come to worship him. The wise men came first to Jerusalem, assuming that the leaders of the Jews would be aware and excited about the birth of their Messiah, but the wise men were about to find out that this wasn't the case at all. Look at what happens in verse 3. When Herod the king heard about this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, Herod was constantly on guard against threats to his rule, especially from his own family. He assassinated many of his own family members whom he suspected of disloyalty. His being troubled in this instance is completely in character. 
Now, as I said before, Herod wanted to be accepted by the Jews whom he ruled, but, but he was not a Jew at all, but an Edomite. Rome recognized him as the leader over Judah, but, but over Judea, but, but the Jews tempered their great admiration for his building with the great hatred that they had of him. Uh, William Barclay, the commentator, reminds us of what a bloody, violent ruler Herod was. Let me read you this quote. He says, Herod had no sooner, sooner come to the throne than he began by annihilating the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. Later, he slaughtered 300 court officers out of hand. Later, he murdered his wife, Mariame, her mother, Alexandria, his eldest son, Antipater, and two other sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Now, again, you can see where the saying arose. It was safer to be Herod's pig than it was Herod's son. So what was he? He was troubled. And not only him, but all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would all Jerusalem, the whole city, be troubled? The whole city be in an uproar because of the visit of these wise men? Well, I think there's a couple things at play. First of all, it shows us that this was probably a large company of people traveling with the wise men, right? These were wealthy, influential men. I don't think it was three men on ponies going across the whole desert. This was probably a large caravan of men and supplies and servants and camels and all the rest of it. So, so Jerusalem noticed, hey, there's a foreign delegation in this city and something's going on. They're meeting with Herod and we don't know what's happening. But the other reason why they might be troubled is because they would wonder, how is Herod going to react to this? Here comes now a threat to the rule of Herod. What's going to happen? So indeed, what will happen? Verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among my rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Do you notice what's going on here? You just got to pause for a moment and be amazed. What has Jesus done to this point? Nothing. He's cried a little. He's had to have his diaper changed a few times. He's, he's fed himself at Mary's breast. Jesus hasn't done anything. And yet, it gives us a testimony about how great Jesus is, even as a young child. I, I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, Jesus of Nazareth is so potent a factor in the world of, of this world that no sooner is there in... Is he there in his utmost weakness, a now-born king? Then he begins to reign. Before he mounts his throne, friends bring him presents, and his enemies plan his death. That's how mighty Jesus is. All the chief priests and the scribes come together. I want you to consider this as well. This was the first contact that Jesus had with the religious rulers of Judaism in his day, right? I mean, we think later of all the debates, of all the contests, of all the things that went on between Jesus and the religious leaders. This was the very first contact. And what did they do? Well, they understood the scriptures regarding the birth of Jesus, and they understood those scriptures perfectly. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It was a correct biblical analysis that they give. Nevertheless, did they make any application of it in their life? I find it fascinating, the reaction. You would have thought that they said, wait a minute, are you telling me that you have some reason to believe that the Messiah has been born? Well, we'll tell you he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Let's all go to Bethlehem together and find out. But what did they do? Well, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and they gave a great big yawn, not caring whether he was actually born or not. Oh, they knew their Bibles, but they didn't know God very well at all. And then they, they had the right information, but they were personally uninterested in meeting the Messiah for themselves. Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Now, I don't want to spoil the story for you tonight, but later on, Herod is going to command 
that all the boys in Bethlehem from two years old and younger be murdered, be killed in an effort to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, because he set that date at two years old and younger, and let's face it, isn't there a pretty substantial difference between a two-year-old and a, you know, a newborn baby? Absolutely there is. We can surmise that it has been some period of time since the wise men left, right? That they saw the star, I would suppose, somewhere in the neighborhood of a year ago. They reported this to Herod, and Herod later on in the chapter, just to be safe, says, let's make it every child two years old, every male child two years old and younger. So, um, they said, he said to them, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him. Also, he claims a desire to worship him, but what does he want to do? He actually wants to murder Jesus instead of worshiping him. Again, I think we have to be struck by this. Herod had just heard a very good Bible study about the birthplace of the Messiah, right? Did it do him any good? Not at all. Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed. And maybe I should stop right here. I just want you to notice something. What did Herod ask the wise men to do? To come back to him after they had seen this child and tell him where he was so that Herod could go and worship him. Just a quick reminder. Did the wise men promise to do that? No. They made no promise. Some people believe that the wise men could sense that there was something strange in this request. Maybe something insincere in this request of Herod's. We notice that they made no promise that they would go back and do this. Verse 9 again. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold... The star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now here, in verse 9, miraculously, the star that had guided them thus far reappears in the sky. Uh, We can surmise that the star was evident some months before, but had disappeared. But now, since they're leaving Jerusalem and going actually a very short distance, right? Only about 10 kilometers or 6 miles to Bethlehem, the star guides them once again. And there are some people who think, that the star actually was moving and sort of stood right over the place. I have to tell you that one modern commentator, a a man named France, who's very good in his original languages, he says that the words in the New Testament here, came to rest, literally mean came and stood, and can only mean that the star itself moved to guide the Magi. I think what we're talking here is no normal uh, astronomical phenomenon. This is something unique. This is something that is a supernatural phenomenon. And the star comes and stood over where the young child was. There's one more thing that I found very interesting in the commentary by Adam Clark, one of my more favored commentators. I don't always agree with what he says, but he often says interesting things. He says that literally, that phrase, where it stood over where the young child was, more literally, it's, it stood over the head of the child. And he says that the idea of the star standing over the head of the child is the origin of the idea for the halo that's depicted in religious art. That there was a star over the head of the child, a light shining behind the head of the child, and that this was the origin of this uh, desire to depict a halo in religious art. I I can't say whether or not that's true. I just found it to be an interesting suggestion. Anyway, nevertheless, you look at what happens here, starting again. We're we're looking at verses 9 through 12, and it says there, uh, verse 10, they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, and when they had come to the house, notice this, They saw the young child with Mary, his mother. I want you to notice something. First of all, 
Jesus isn't really called a baby. He's called a young child. Secondly, where did the wise men come? Did they come to a stable? No, they came to a house. Very obviously, this is removed from the scene with the shepherds, right? The shepherds come to the stable. The shepherds come the night of Jesus' birth. No, no, no. These are the wise men coming many months later. We also notice that Joseph seems to be absent from the scene, right? Joseph's not there. Uh, He comes back later in the story. It's not like Joseph is dead or anything. But Joseph is not here when the wise men came. And we also notice that when it is listed... The child is listed first, which is really out of custom in the ancient world. Customarily in the ancient world, you would say the mother and her child. Here you say the child and his mother, because the emphasis is put on Jesus himself. And when they come, what do they do? They open up gifts for the child. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, I want you to notice, who did they give the gifts to? Now, normally you would think they give the gifts to the mother, right? Here, child, here's some gold. Have fun with it. What's a year-old or a two-year-old child going to do with gold? It seems to make no sense. But again, they were honoring the child. The idea that there were three wise men comes from the fact that there were three gifts described. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And many people have rightly observed, gold is the kind of gift that you would give to a king. Frankincense is the kind of gift that you would give to a priest, because incense was offered as a priestly duty. And myrrh is the kind of gift that you would give to an undertaker, to a mortician, somebody who dealt with dead bodies, because myrrh was a spice used in embalming bodies. One speaks of Jesus' royalty, one speaks of Jesus' priesthood, and the other speaks of Jesus' death. Now, I just want to make it clear. I don't think that the wise men knew what they were doing. I don't think that the wise men consciously offered these three gifts to express these three things. But, But nevertheless, God in his providence certainly arranged it, didn't he? Appropriate gifts to honor Jesus. So these present these gifts to him, to Jesus, and then what did they do? If you notice at the end, it says, then they fell down and worshipped him. You know, more important than their gifts was the fact that they worshipped Jesus. And it must have been an amazing sight to see these very impressive dignitaries bowing before a young child. Here are these great men of the East, grown-up men, dignified men, stooping down to worship a little child. Now, in all of this, we see three different responses to Jesus, don't we? It's really remarkable. First of all, Herod. What was his response? Herod openly hated Jesus and wanted to kill him. That's one response. A second response was that of the chief priests and the scribes. The chief priests and the scribes were indifferent towards Jesus. They don't care. Oh, the Messiah is born? Huh, who cares? We've got our own thing going on. And then what's the third response? The response of the wise men who sought out Jesus and worshipped him even at great cost. I think that it's very interesting to compare this with the earlier visit of the shepherds. Right? The shepherds came earlier. The shepherds came, and that's described in Luke chapter 2. Compare and contrast the visit of the shepherds with the visit of the Magi, and this is what you find. You find that Jesus came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. You find that he came to the humble and ignorant first, and then he came to the honorable and learned. And you see that Jesus came to the poor first, and then he came to the rich. But finally, I think we should learn from the wisdom of these wise men. First of all, they were not satisfied to look at the star and then admire it. Oh, what a beautiful star. Well, I love seeing a beautiful star. No, they did something about it. They set out and they followed it. Secondly, they persevered in their search and in following after the star. You know, it took them many days, perhaps weeks, to get to their destination. But they did it because they felt it was worth it. How many people? They'll seek after Jesus if it's easy. If it costs them something, if it's a little bit of work, well, they want no part of it. Thirdly, They were not discouraged in the search by the clergy or the religious leaders who who, who didn't seem to care about the thing they were searching about. Next, they rejoiced at the star. Following, when they arrived at the destination that the star led them to, 
they entered in. They didn't just stop at the house. Here it is. We found it. This is the place. And then went back home. No, they wanted to enter in and actually see this. And when they entered in, they worshipped and they sensed an urgency to worship him then and not later. And then finally, when they worshipped, it was to give him something. It was not empty-handed adoration. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, those who look for Jesus will see him. Those who truly see him will worship him. And those who worship him will consecrate their substance to him. They will give unto him. Well, again, this marvelous, marvelous thing. So after it's all over, the wise men are divinely warned in a dream that they should not go back to Herod, and they obey this dream, and they head back to their homes in the east. Verse 13. Now, when they had departed, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, which was there and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken to the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Again, you have to be fascinated by this. How often in these early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew does God speak to people by dreams over and over again? To Joseph several times, now to the wise men, it just seems like this is a common way that God is speaking to people in these early chapters of Matthew. But what God said to Joseph in the dream was very plain. Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. By the way, I want you to know how God refers to the family. You would think that God might refer to Mary first. No. Take the young child and his mother and go to Egypt. The command was urgent and it came right away after the wise men had departed. It wouldn't have found, sounded completely strange to Joseph that they should find refuge in Egypt because there was a large Jewish community in Egypt. And it isn't strange that the Holy Spirit would guide Joseph to take the family there. About this time, they say there was up to a million Jews living in Egypt. It wasn't unusual at all. There was whole Jewish communities living in Egypt at that time. Because, the reason why it was important, because Herod would seek the young child to destroy him. Now again, this is completely consistent with the character of Herod, is it not? We know him from history to be just the kind of man who would do this. And again, this is something that's, well, it's just sobering, I should say. God added humanity to his deity and came to earth. And he came to earth in the most non-threatening manner anybody could imagine. Who's afraid of a two-year-old, right? Well, listen, I know some parents who are afraid of their two-year-olds, but that's a whole other issue. I mean, in a fight, you're not afraid of a two-year-old, right? Who's afraid of a two-year-old? Well, I want you to notice Herod was. And Herod's instinct said this, I have to kill this child. Isn't it remarkable that the immediate reaction of one section of humanity when God became man and when God came in a non-threatening manner, one reaction among one segment of humanity was saying, we have to kill this guy. Absolutely remarkable. And so what did Joseph do? He arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and they went, do you sense the urgency? They went by night. They went right away and they traveled to Egypt to get themselves out of the area that was ruled by Herod. And they stayed there until Herod died. And so it would be fulfilled. If you notice here in verse 15, it says, the passage, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a prophecy from Hosea 11, verse 1. Matthew makes it clear that just as Israel came from Egypt and was regarded as God's offspring, so to speak. So the Messiah himself fulfills this role as sort of the new Israel. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, 
a voice heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You imagine this. Herod says, we have to kill this child who was born to be king of the Jews. I'm terrified of this two-year-old. Let's kill all the two-year-old male children in Bethlehem. That's what I want you to understand. First of all, we look at this and we say, could this really happen? Well, I'll be honest with you. There is no record of this massacre in secular history. But you know, that doesn't surprise us. It really doesn't. Because first of all, it is completely consistent with the character of Herod, right? From what we know of Herod, he was just bloodthirsty enough to do this. If he didn't care about killing his own sons, he certainly didn't care about killing the sons of strangers. But I want you to know this. Actually, it got even worse for Herod as his own death approached. And we know he was not many years or months now from his own death. When Herod knew that his own death was approaching, he had many Jewish leaders of Jerusalem arrested on false charges. And this is what Herod ordered. He ordered that as soon as he died, all of these Jewish leaders should be murdered. Now, why would he do that? Why would he demand that they be murdered after he died? Because Herod was determined that there would be some people who would weep when he died. He felt nobody else is going to cry when I'm dead. I'll make sure that these men who are murdered cry and their families cry. That's what a cruel man he was. Well, but I think it's important for us to understand that though this was a massacre, we shouldn't blow it out of proportion. You know, Bethlehem wasn't a large town. It was actually somewhat of a small village. And if you're talking about the two-year-old children in that town, you're probably talking about maybe a dozen, maybe 20 children at the most. I'm not trying to say that it wasn't a horrible thing that Herod did. Of course it was. But I'm just trying to explain why there might be no record of this in secular history. And so it was fulfilled, as it says, a voice heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Here Matthew quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. And originally, this passage from Jeremiah referred to the mourning of Israel's mothers during the conquest and captivity of the nation. But here, Matthew takes Rachel as a representation of Bethlehem's mothers, and she says, it's like Rachel, this mama Israel, is weeping all over again on behalf of the nation. Again, The prophecy was literally fulfilled when Judah was carried into captivity. Then there was a great mourning in the tribes of Benjamin and Judah for their children that were killed and carried away in captivity. But now it was fulfilled, or you might even say verified, a second time. Verse 19. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, another dream, right? Saying, arise, Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. God speaks to Joseph again in a dream, again through the angel of the Lord, and Joseph again quickly obeys, and he takes the family back to Israel. But you know what I want you to notice here? The young child, the young child, the young child. Repeatedly, who has the prominence in the account? It's the young child himself. In any regard, the family comes back to Israel. It was only appropriate that the um, Messiah would grow up mostly in Israel and not spend most of his childhood in Egypt. And he came out of Egypt and came back into Israel. There have been some people who falsely teach that Egyptian magicians or sorcerers influenced Jesus. And as a matter of fact, that his later miracles were really just Egyptian tricks. It's important to know that there is no evidence whatsoever for such claims at all. And there, in fact, is significant evidence against such claims. What's the evidence against such claims? Well, particularly 
that the teaching and style of the ministry of Jesus is completely influenced by Old Testament Judaism, not by Egyptian mysticism. There's nothing in the teaching or ministry of Jesus that makes you say Egyptian mystic. There's everything in it that makes you say, this is a man that comes as the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament. Now to the end of the chapter. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah or Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, you're Joseph. God tells you, go back to Israel. Herod's dead. You can go back. Well, the whole question is, where do you go? Well, I don't know about you, but if I was Joseph, my first instinct would be, you go to Jerusalem, right? My child's the Messiah. He's going to be the king of the Jews. Where else should the Messiah grow up if not in Jerusalem? Shouldn't this be his home? Shouldn't this be his environment, his surroundings? Now, there's something else that you have to consider, too. That there was a great difference culturally between Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee to the north. Right? You had Jerusalem and Judea, which was south of Galilee. That was the religious area. Right? This was the area where the Jewish people could really be Jews and faithful Jews. That's where the godly people was. You could think of it as the, the land of the pious. It was the Bible belt of the region, right? That's where the good, proper, religious people were. Galilee? Listen, the problem with Galilee, a lot of Jews lived in Galilee, of course, but also a lot of Gentiles lived in Galilee. Galilee was like the impure area. Why should the Messiah grow up in Galilee? I imagine, I can't say I know this for sure, but I imagine that Joseph's first instinct was, this kid should grow up in Jerusalem. If not in Jerusalem, why not Judea, right? Why not Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem's close to Jerusalem. He can visit lots of times. He can live in Bethlehem, right? I would imagine this was Joseph's first instinct. I'll add one more thing to the mix. There was another reason for Joseph to stay away from Galilee in general and Nazareth in particular. That's where they were from. Here's the young couple, right? The wife gets pregnant under very suspicious circumstances, and then they run off, and then they're gone, and then they go to Egypt, and then they come back. You know how the tongues talk in these little villages, right? How would you like to go back to that? I imagine that in some ways, Nazareth was the last place that they wanted to go. I just imagine the conversation in my mind. I mean, obviously, I can't tell you it happened, but I imagine it happening. Joseph saying, you know, Mary, sweetheart, I think God wants us to go to Nazareth. What? Nazareth? I'm never going back there. You know, you know what they're talking about. You know, I'm going face all my family. They think I'm a disgrace. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't. I imagine that happening. But then Mary and Joseph all surrendering to the will of God. And what happened? Being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. By the way, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Doesn't that tell you that he was intending to go to Judea and Jerusalem? But he turned aside from that to go to Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. Now, why again? Well, because this man mentioned in verse 22, Archelaus was reigning over Judah. Joseph had good reason to be cautious regarding Archelaus. Archelaus was the son of Herod, and he governed the domain of Herod in Jerusalem and Judea. And he turned out to be such an incompetent and violent ruler that at the plea of the Jews of Judea, the Romans deposed Archelaus for misrule, and they replaced him with a governor appointed by Rome in 6 AD. Do you know why there was not a king over Judea, but instead Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, over Judea later on at the death of Jesus? It was because Archelaus was such an incompetent ruler that the Jews of Judea themselves asked the Romans, kick this guy out and send us your own governor, we'll do better under him. 
That was the whole situation. Of course, Pontius Pilate didn't come in 6 AD. He came much later. But it was, he was the successor of those Roman governors. So, being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he goes there to semi-pagan Galilee, to the place where the religious pure people don't go. The religious people of Judea looked down upon the people at Galilee. Now, you pagans, you guys don't live you know, where the holy people live here in Judea. And worse yet, you could say, they came to Nazareth. You want to know what was remarkable about Nazareth? It was a very unremarkable town. It's because that's the place where everybody knew Mary and Joseph and all of their business. It was an unwalled, unprotected town. Do you know what it meant that a town was unwalled? It meant it had no defense. It meant that any gang of 20 murderous thieves could come into that town at any time and take what they wanted because there were no walls to protect the village. Matter of fact, Nazareth was so low thought of that later on, when Jesus begins his ministry and a guy named Philip tells a guy named Nathaniel about Jesus, what does Nathaniel say? He says, you're telling me this guy's from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was raised in that kind of town. Now, you know how it is. Every region, every area, there's some town or some village where they like to make fun of the people there, right? I mean, it's just, well, those people, they're, they're the farmers, you know, they're the stupid people, they're the people who don't know anything. You know, it's just those people there. There's always a town that people make fun of. That's the kind of place that Nazareth was. So notice this. It says it right there in verse 23 that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, of all of Matthew's references to the Old Testament and to the prophets, this one is one of the most interesting. You want to know why? Because there is no verse in the Old Testament that says that he shall be called a Nazarene. Search far and wide. Now, now listen, there are people who question some of the things that Matthew has quoted before. Hosea 11.1, 1, uh, out of Egypt I have called my son. Gee, that, is that really legit that he's quoting that? Uh, the, the, the one from Jeremiah about Rachel weeping and mourning and the lamentation. Gee, is that really legit? But this one, this one really drives people crazy. Because what does he say? I'll read it to you again. That it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, some people think that Matthew meant that the Messiah would be a Nazarite. Do you know what a Nazarite was? Uh, Samson was a Nazarite. The Nazarite was somebody who took a special vow of consecration. It's described first in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And what the vow of a Nazarite was all about was this, was that for a certain period of time, you vowed that you would not cut your hair, you would not drink any wine or eat anything that came from a grapevine, no grapes, no raisins, no wine, no grape juice, nothing, and you would not go near a dead body. These things would defile you. And you used it as a period of time to specially consecrate yourself to the Lord. Typically, the vow of a Nazarite was taken for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. Samson was unique because he was to be a Nazarite from his very birth. There are people who think, well, it makes sense that the Messiah would be a specially consecrated man. That's what's spoken of here, the remarkable consecration of the Messiah. But here's the problem here. I really think that he uses a different word completely. He doesn't say there in the verse, he shall be called a Nazarite. He says, he shall be called a Nazarene, and it is a different word. You see, we think that, but then we have to ask, what specific prophecy tells us in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from Nazareth, right? We know that the Bible says the Messiah would come out of Egypt. We saw that one tonight. 
Last week we saw, or tonight we saw as well, that, that the scriptures say that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That was true. What Old Testament passage tells us that the Messiah would come from Nazareth? And the question, the answer is, there is none. I want you to notice him. There's something very interesting that one commentator puts forth. Again, it's France, and I want you to read this. I'll read this to you from his commentary. I found it very interesting. He said, It should be noted, however, that the formula introducing this quotation is different from the regular pattern in two ways. It refers not to a single prophet, but to the prophets. Did you notice that? Matthew didn't say, It is written in the prophet. Right? He said, it is written in the prophets, plural. Secondly, France says that it concludes not with saying, but with that. In other words, it says, if spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. This suggests that this was not meant to be a quotation of a specific passage, but a summary of the theme of messianic expectation. I really think what he's getting at here is this. Matthew sees in the lowliness and obscurity of Nazareth a fulfillment of the prophecies saying that the Messiah would be a humble and rejected man. It is fitting that a Messiah that would come as a humble and rejected man would come from a place like Nazareth. Now let me throw something else in the mix. If there was any specific passage in Matthew's mind, it was probably Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, which says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The Hebrew word translated branch in Isaiah 11, 1, sounds like the word nazir. It's the word neser. Christian Scholars all the way back to the early church believe that Matthew was using this play on words from this prophecy about the branch, the humble branch that grows from the root of Jesse to say that the Messiah would come in a humble way and is reflecting that he would come from the city of Nazareth. Let me read to you from Spurgeon. I think he speaks on this beautifully. He meant that the prophets have described the Messiah as one that would be despised and rejected of men. They spoke of him as a great prince and conqueror when they described his second coming. But they set forth his first coming when they spoke of him as a root out of the dry ground without form or comeliness, who when when he should be seen would have no beauty that men should desire him. The prophet said that he would be called uh, by a despicable title, and it was so, for his countrymen called him a Nazarene. Now think about that. He shall be called a Nazarene. In the plan of God the Father, inspired by God the Spirit, lived out by God the Son, the Messiah grew up in a somewhat despised town. Jesus would forever be known as Jesus of Nazareth. And his followers would be known as Nazarenes. Think about it. Jesus embraced this association with this lowly, despised town. When Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, and this was obviously after his resurrection, after his ascension, after he was seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Do you know how he introduced himself to Paul? He said to Paul, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, Paul, you know Nazareth? That city you guys all make fun of and despise? I'm the guy from that place. And by the way, in Acts chapter 24, the prosecutors of Paul said this to his judge. They said this, We have found this man a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. When they called him Jesus of Nazareth, they weren't paying him a compliment. When they called the followers of Jesus Nazarenes, they weren't trying to be nice. Certainly, He has been called a Nazarene, both by Jews, 
by angry unbelievers. They spit on the ground in disgust. And many a time, an adversary of Jesus has hissed out the name Nazarene as if it was another way that they could heap contempt upon him. Growing up in Nazareth, Jesus would mature in boyhood and then in his young adulthood. He would fulfill the responsibilities expected of an eldest son And then at some time, Joseph disappeared from the scene, and Jesus became the man of the family. He worked his trade, supported his family, loved his God, and he proved himself faithful in a thousand small things before he formally entered into his appointed ministry. Yet no one, no one would ever be intimidated to meet a man from Nazareth. And the tendency, when you met a guy from Nazareth, what would be the tendency? You would immediately think you were better than him, right? Hi, uh, I'm Jesus. I'm from Nazareth. <laughs> Nazareth. And you, you, I mean, there's no way that you would be on guard meeting the guy. You, you meet the guy from New York. So, oh, well, he's from New York. You meet the guy from Berlin or London or, or Paris. It's, wow, he might be an important guy. I mean, he comes from an important place. You would never think that, meeting the man from Nazareth. How humble. What a servant Jesus came to be. Well, let's, let's pray. I, I just have full on my heart to pray right now. Father, Lord, if Jesus accepted it to be humbled and despised of men, Lord, let us remember that uh, it's not the end of the world when we are humbled and when we are despised by others. It really isn't, Lord. We're just following in many ways in the footsteps of our Savior. So help us, Lord. We want to be your people in this world. We want to be your followers. And if that means being called Nazarenes, then, Lord, we're more than happy to be followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Help us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.